Hi, folks. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. All right. Our guest this episode is Dr. Glenn Fox. Now, Glenn, in addition to being someone who I am lucky enough to call a friend, is a faculty member at USC's Lloyd Greif Center for Entrepreneurial Studies, where he's the director and founder of the USC Found Well Initiative. Now, this aims to understand and promote the entrepreneurial mindset in founders and business leaders. Glenn received his PhD in neuroscience from USC, where he focused on neurocorrelates of gratitude, empathy, and neuroplasticity, all of which I think we're about to dig into during this conversation. Outside of USC, Glenn is the chief science officer of the C4 Foundation, which serves to strengthen and protect Navy SEAL families, and he sits on the advisory board of the Flow Research Collective, which in my humble opinion is just plain epic. Now, before we get started, a quick reminder, if you want to be more involved with the Emergency Mind Project community, we would absolutely love to have you, and there are so many ways to link up. The easiest thing to do is to head to emergencymind.com, look in the upper right corner of the screen up there, and take the crisis skills test. It's free, it's quick, and it's a great way to test your skills and habits against those of elite performers across different domains. All right. All of that said, let's jump into uh, what I think is going to be just a damn cool discussion. So Glenn, it's great to see you and thank you for coming on the podcast. Of course, my pleasure, Dan. Always, always good. This is basically like a, one of our standard phone calls, but we're going <laughs> to share it for posterity. So exactly. yeah, thanks for, thanks for bringing me on. Exactly. So we've had the, some of the backstory behind this is that um, we uh, both work at USC, although in very different worlds and linked up at some point or another and have done a series of sort of well, I, I would say very interesting, although I'm a little biased, conversations about the mix of performance in the worlds of emergency medicine and the worlds of entrepreneurship. There are way more corollaries and um, similarities here than you might think on the surface. And I think that's something we're going to get into. But over the course of doing that, we found, hey, we're, we're both folks that approach uh, the world of performance with an, an eye of trying to learn from the best of what other people have sort of figured out and map that onto what's going on in day-to-day in -day life. Um so maybe, I don't know, maybe that's a great place to start. Why don't we get into that? How did somebody who has a background in deep neuroscience get into entrepreneurship? What, what is that link like? It's a much more natural connection than, than I think people realize. It's quite simple is that I'm, I'm really interested in stress. I'm really interested in how humans feel as a process, right? Like, how do we feel things? How do we have emotion? How do we process the things that happen to us? And how do those feelings influence our outcomes? As a neuroscientist, I was kind of an odd duck because I was always interested in unique subject populations. I was always fascinated with how can I find the people doing something really rare, really unique, and how can I learn from their brains? And translate that into everyday lives and workplaces. My first research study was actually a study of frontal lobotomy, mm -hmm. uh, looking at plasticity and actually measuring frontal lobotomy using modern imaging tools known as diffusion tensor imaging. And it really set me up for a love of, um, you know, lesion studies, patient studies of studies of people who are kind of, um, you know, different in some way. Mm -hmm. And most neuroscientists aren't after this, the lesion studies go back, you know, the original neuroscience studies are all lesion studies. Sure. Right? Um, but now with, you know, kind of the modern tools from psychology and uh, brain imaging, 
people are really after universal cognitive architecture, meaning what's true mm -hmm. for one person, what's true for all the people, right? So, you know, vision science is probably the most developed of, you know, the, the, the nervous system, you know, uh, fields of study, right? And, um, and that's, that's fantastic. It's a great way to learn things. And, um, but it just doesn't tug at my heartstrings. <laughs> so yeah. even in graduate school, I was like, I, you know, I worked at a lab in uh, a lab with a neuroscientist named Antonio Damasio, who is my um, advisor. And Antonio and Hannah, uh, his wife, made their career studying lesion patients. And they were neurologists. And that's why I really wanted to work with them because they were, they were some of the people who were most dedicated to understanding um, unique individuals. And so they, they brought me into their lab and I, I really uh, loved it there, but it still wasn't really applied enough for me. I really wanted to go out and look at what are the really rare people? What are the people doing who are able to undertake immense stress? People who are doing something so different than the normal people. And I always wanted to work with elite athletes. I always wanted to work with, um, you know, folks in the military, um, and I was able to get some of that in my last position with the Performance Science Institute, but it still was, there was kind of like, I kind of went so far that those folks are really hard to get a hold of and really hard to study and really hard to make sense of. So I thought, well, what's the middle? And in the middle of that is, is entrepreneurship, it's founders. So every founder that wants to start a company is going to undergo a process. Now, I don't think founders are in of themselves particularly interesting, to be honest. In fact, there's no real personality traits that predict whether somebody mm -hmm. will be a successful founder. There's not really um, a, a predictive model for, okay, you've got a hundred people, let's give them a survey. And from that we'll deduce there's five, five of these people. It just doesn't work like that. Um, but the process of entrepreneurship is really universal as people are gonna, um, take some some degree of risk, not always a lot, um, but some some degree of risk. Um, they're going to try to create value in some form or another. They're going to try to build and and um, solicit resource, and they're going to try to onboard uh, stakeholders, right? And then see what happens. So every founder undergoes this process, and there's some really unique hallmarks in it. There's some some very interesting theories about how people build and start companies. And so for me, it's been a really natural extension of my interest in unique populations mm. and emotion combined with a vocation that repeats itself over and over again. So for founders who are taking on these risks, who are really trying to start up something interesting, um, you can find them all over. You can find them in, um, of course, you know, our tech founders want scalable, exponential growth, all that high risk, high disruption kind of thing. They're interesting, um, but also you can see the same sorts of hallmarks in people that are, they just need to put food on the table. So they come up with an idea, they start selling sandwiches, they start doing whatever. And so there's some kind of universalities to it that are really interesting. Um, and you can find these people more readily. <laughs> so mm -hmm. the other interesting thing is that the, the risk is, um, the risks for founders are, um, are different than they are for um, you know, a military operator, right? So they're, sure. they're internal risks in a way, right? You have, you have real risks, right? You can, you know, some founders will mortgage their own homes. They can end up in really bad financial state, of course. Um, but the challenges are how well can the mind handle the mind? 
as opposed to, you know, people training to become reconnaissance Marines, where it's how well can the mind handle the body, which is really super interesting. And, and some of those things translate and some of them don't. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really interesting um, to kind of move over to a, a set of task demands for founders that are entirely um, cognitive and affective at the same time. Hmm. So long okay. story. I hope that clarifies a little bit. No, no, that's that's awesome. I'm gonna I'm gonna go backward and fill in uh, one or two links here, which is that if you don't have a background in neuroscience, what Glenn's talking about when he talks about lesion patients, right, or lesion studies, these are brains which are altered in one way or another from sort of what you'd call like the average brain architecture, um, either uh, because of trauma or because of disease or surgery in some cases, where one part of the brain is actually basically just disconnected or destroyed, uh, and that results in the brain behaving in a different way than normal by a lot of classical neuroscience was done through experimentation by simply turning off in one form or another different parts of the brain and being like, oh, that's what that thing does, right? Uh, in a very sort of like rough, roughshod manner. My apologies to my other neuroscience friends who are listening to my attempt to explain neuroscience. Um, I'm just going to quote Dan as saying, this is exactly how the brain works. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't pretend to know exactly <laughs> how the brain works. However, I do find this question of how can the mind handle the mind and its relationship to the physical brain that that's it, you know, related to so absolutely fascinating. Um, I also want to go back to one thing you said, which is like, do we study elite extreme examples of something or do we study a universal cognitive architecture? Because these are two very different approaches to getting at the things, right? And this is a, um, a tension and a dichotomy that we see a lot uh, over the course of the Emergency Mind Project, which is what is it that we're trying to do when our goal is to improve the application of knowledge under pressure, right? Should we be studying the far out edge of what the minimal few can accomplish, or should we be studying what everybody can accomplish most of the time and pushing that forward a little bit, which is the right, the right direction? It's sort of a false dichotomy. There's probably not a right direction, right? They both give you different things and different pieces, but it's worth calling that out in a way. Um, I, I guess I'd ask like, you know, when it comes to uh, the ability of the mind to handle stress and the ability of a human to handle stress and pressure, and, and really, really, we're not talking about um, the physical body handling stress and pressure as much as we are, let's say, the ability to maintain high quality decision making over time under pressure, right? Whatever the mental task is, right? Mm -hmm. So the ability to make complex logical decisions well or to make complex decisions under uncertain conditions well. What do we know about the universal cognitive architecture of that? How does that work for most people? Yeah, it's a small I'd question. Start by saying, yeah, yeah I'd start by saying <laughs> that, um, just a small question. Yeah. Um, no, I'd start by saying that we feel first and think second. Mm. That a lot of times we really hope that maybe this time, if we just have the right thoughts and the right rationale, our performance will follow. But emotion and decision making have to work together, right? And we, when we talk about emotion, when most people hear the word, they probably think of something bad. They probably think of somebody crying or panicking or uh, wrought with anger. Um, but emotion is happening constantly. It's unfolding in response to everything that's happening both outside of our bodies that we can perceive um, but emotion is a behavior that is taking place inside the body, right? So emotion and feeling 
is a system for monitoring the internal status of our body. And that's what it's for. You have 20-20 vision, hopefully, or I do, because I wear contact lenses, um, and for the outside world. And then we have some other systems for what we call interoception, right? So eyes are for exteroception, right? Interoception means looking inward, right? And monitoring what's happening in the body. And what's interesting, whether you're um, an emergency room physician or a toddler or an entrepreneur or a professor or whatever, um, this system of emotion and feeling is unfolding at all times and will influence our perceptions, will influence our decision-making and will influence um, you know, everything about how we see the world in, in even a predictive manner in many cases. Um, and that's, that's universal. In fact, um, Antonio, my advisor, was one of the first people to devise a test known as the Iowa gambling task to begin to dissociate emotion and decision-making and using lesion patients. So these were patients with damage to part of their brain um, known as the medial prefrontal cortex. So right up, kind of right up above your nose and between your eyes, like, so like right up over there um, that, that people with lesions to this part of the brain could not make good decisions. Their lives were falling apart. Um, they usually had to end up with some sort of stewardship, some sort of um, person to like help them see their way through the world. And what's interesting is when you look at their decision-making process, like if you say, okay, do you want to eat lunch um, here or there? They would concoct a pro and con list for each one. They would have these really quote rational structures for making decision making because they didn't have the ability to link their emotions with their decision making so you need both right i'm a, I'm a scientist i i'm a big fan of reason um big fan of the enlightenment and you know all those <laughs> different things um but it still comes back to feeling it still comes back to how we feel and those feelings uh influence our ability to make a decision i hope you didn't um, you know, sometimes you could make a, a pro and con list about where do you want to eat for lunch, but it's it's not very efficient and it's mm -hmm. mostly unnecessary. Um, and in the meantime, these people have no ability to forecast decision making over time. Um, they are, in some ways, this is kind of a paradox, right? Is that um, if you don't have the ability to feel how an emotion could play out over time, then you're left with immediate decisions and thus the desire for immediate gratification goes up considerably right because you're no longer um you're thinking very rationally do you want a thousand dollars now or, or no dollars and you're like i'll take a thousand dollars right so it's it's actually kind of a paradox when you dive into these things right so hmm. um the studies of high performers the studies of people who learn to um you know meditate and um, really kind of go inside to understand their mind, they're almost always finding um, interesting differences in these parts of the brain that have to do with emotion, have to do with interoception, a part of the brain called the insula. Um, uh, and these these factors are, are near universal. At some point, you have to learn to understand emotion if you want to perform, right? That, that knowing how emotion broadly Broadly, actually correctly defined, not necessarily broadly defined, but correctly defined means that, that at all times you're thinking 
um, with your gut. You're thinking, okay, how does that work? How can I push aside emotions that are not useful now? How can I, how can I cultivate emotions that might help? How do I cultivate um, thoughts that predispose me to those emotions and vice versa? Right. So hmm. uh, this aspect of interoception and um, awareness is, is absolutely critical for performance. So let's push on that. So uh, what actually is emotion? I mean, I know you said it's an internal scan system that sort of, you know, intercepts what's going on, but, you know, I, I think for a lot of folks, sometimes myself included, you know, like it's still like a little gremlin jumping around being like, do this. Mm -hmm. Right. So like, like what, what actually, what is emotion? What do we think that it is? How do we think that it works? Yeah. It's important to distinguish emotion and feeling actually. Right. So when we talk about emotion, at least in the laboratory and in my, my background and my training, um, emotion is a set is a physical change in the body. It's a behavior. It's something that is measurable, not easy to measure, but is or could be measured through the release of, you know, um, uh, chemicals into the bloodstream, right? Um, it's the flushing of our cheeks, it's the dilation of our pupils, the sweating of our palms, etc. These are all uh, the, the physical manifestation of emotion that we could essentially just call emotion. It's a behavior, it's a measurable behavior that is a change in our body state related to some change in our environment and that that environment can be of course the proverbial um you know bear jumping out of the woods but it could also be the email <laughs> that reminds us of a, that feels like a bear in which case triggers many of the same uh systems of emotion um and um then those emotions are felt okay and so what we have is emotion being a physical change in the body that's constructed and it's based on estimates and guesswork. And it's always thinking about the future. Emotion is always have some prediction about the future. That's really what it's trying to do. And it's trying to kind of guess what's happening. Right. So I'm kind of at the, there's, there's some theorists. I can, I can provide you some links for more reading for people. Um, but then we also need a classification for how emotions are perceived, right? So if I'm saying, okay, emotion has some physical substrate, some behavior, um, then, okay, what does it mean to feel emotion? Well, the feeling is the hidden conscious perception of emotion. So feeling is a, is a, a verb related to feeling emotion. So it's the sense of, oh, what it feels like to be grateful, right? Um, and that's the part that's hidden and personal for each of us, right? So I don't really know what fear might feel like to somebody else. I know what it feels like for myself. Um, we may be able to measure some of the substrates of fear, but, but using those substrates to predict a specific type of feeling or even to say, oh, um, this brain region is, an act, is active, therefore this person is feeling fear is a really tough one, right? So feeling is the part that like, we we keep hidden that is very hard to interrogate um and very hard for us to sort of say we understand what a feeling is to another person it's all going to come down to probabilities um but this is what we mean to say emotion is sort of the process of um uh, a, a body changing in response to stimulus 
And then the feeling is the awareness of certain emotions. We don't, we don't necessarily, this is where it gets weird and it gets a little fuzzy. And um, I know we all love buckets. Like that's a feeling, that's a, that's an emotion, but then we go into moods. Well, okay. Where's a mood? Like, what is this? What are some of these terms we have? Gets, it gets harder to define, but, but by giving us some, some um, fuzzy boundaries between these concepts, it, it gets more clear to say, okay, this is what we mean by emotion. Right. Um, okay. So yeah. let, let me see if I, let me see if I understand this uh, to boil this very slightly, which is that there's some change that, that I, or my body perceives, and that could be a small change in the pattern of, you know, the wave I'm looking at when I'm surfing or the way my opponent's weight shifts in jujitsu or something bigger than that, or who knows. And there's some, um, uh, unconscious or hidden from conscious computations going on about what that signal means in terms of my likelihood of success or failure at some goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then as a result of that computation, the bubbling up of that knowledge to the conscious towards the consciousness of my body is a series of physiological changes, which we're going to package into what we'd call an emotion, right? So these are the things you listed, yep. like the physiologic changes, chemical you know, cascades, all of this stuff. Then I'm, and again, sincere apologies to my neuroscience friends. Then I'm, then some other version of me is looking at that list of things that's happening and comparing it to some other list and goes, oh, that's fear. Or, oh, that's excitement. Or, oh, that's, I'm not really sure. Maybe that's like a little bit of both, right? You're looking at like a sort of a, a recipe of what you're cooking in there. Is that like, like that's really yeah, rough? Totally. Okay. Yeah, I would say, um, it gets, it, what gets weird is the feeling part, right? Cause then we're talking mm. about consciousness and, sure. and there's, it's just mysteries all the way down. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so what you have is kind of what I, what I've sort of landed on is you've had some version of a self, right. A concept of who Dan is um, and what it means to be Dan, your autobiographical history and your everything that, that is your essence and that essence is what feels the emotion. Um, and that's that's where, um, you know, you, you're going to be slipping into talking about sure. consciousness very quickly. So, sure. All right. We, we, we don't take a half step back here. Go, <laughs> yeah. um, we don't necessarily need to go into, into that. Um, some great reading. So, again, knowing my biases. So, I'm, I'm a student sure. of Antonio Damasio, um, who has been at the forefront of these things. There's some modern theories coming up too that I think are really, really interesting. Um, my my research is focused on something called the biopsychosocial model, um, which looks at behavior of the heart under stress. Um, hmm. And um, so we can we can dive in. I hope we do. But I, I want to zoom up on one of your summaries. So you did a really nice, the nice summary there. Um, what I want to kind of highlight in a practical sense is like what it's like to learn something, right? Like. Hmm. If I'm in the emergency room with you, um, obviously somebody's going to like if I'm there act, you know, sitting in your shoes, first of all, bad things are about to happen. Like it's not gonna work. <laughs> no idea. But even if you said, hey, look, here's the 10 things you gotta look out for, right? Um, I could go through that list of things, but but you are going to see them and feel them immediately. Sure. Right. Like you're going to be clued into, oh, um, you're before you even know it, like, oh, check this. This is what's happening here. And that system of learning, this goes really well into intuition, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and was it Gary Klein with Sources of yeah. Power? Mm-hmm. I think you're the yeah. one who recommended that book to me. Oh yeah, and the recognition also, prime decision making. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And so that's that's perfect handshake with this theory. Mm-hmm. So if you think if you are into that theory, this is a really good handshake for that because it's kind of removing sort of a cosmic essence and just saying, no, we we actually learn through feeling, we learn through emotion, and our emotions and our instincts often per. Uh, uh, precede our ability to reason through that. Um, so one of the things about um, these tasks where they measure decision-making and risk, um, namely the Iowa gambling task that I referred to earlier, is that as people are learning to get good at this process, learning to get good at the game that they're playing, people's strategies for winning the game improve before they have a conscious feeling of the emotion of what leads to optimal outcomes. Okay. So in other words, let me put that in even more plain English is that people know what to do before they know what to do. They know what the Mm -hmm. right decision is before you say, why'd you choose that card? Why'd you choose this? Why'd you choose that? And as people are like, I don't know, I just kind of feel it. And then subsequent to that, or or, uh, after that, they will go, oh, I figured out these two decks are work. So you're actually, these two decisions tend to play out better. Um, and you're actually, your your decision-making strategies improve before uh, your actual awareness and quote reason for choosing those things does. So I, I use this a lot in, in my workshop, right? So I'm a hobbyist. I make things. I have, um, if it were colder out and not a hundred degrees, I'd be in the shop right now showing you these things. And there's something about building something where like welding is a good example. Like it's not super hard to learn to make weld. It's not, it's the lowest, well, it's not, it's probably the lowest form of welding. I won't get into it, but it's like one thing you learn is before you could even say like, oh, that's a good weld. You get a feeling for like, oh, that was good. Like the way Mm -hmm. it sizzles, the way um, you see how, how the puddle, which is like the molten, part of the metal is flowing um you really get a sense for like oh that's what felt right and every weld is a little different you're at a different angle you've got different thickness of your material you have different cleanliness of material i work with a lot of old rusty steel and like fabricate a lot of things out of um like you know crap i find on the side of the road and so every will every weld um of course, I have my little chart to tell me, oh, it's this thick and I should put it at this amperage and this wire speed. Um, but then I'll go to weld and there's some feeling that's like, no, nah, it needs a little more amp. I could have a little more amperage here and I'm going to change and fine tune it um, based on how I'm feeling about the welds themselves. And when I'm really in touch with that is when my work turns out the best. Yeah. Um, I, surfing I is a it's... good example too, right? Like yeah. even when you're like... Um, you see the swell coming in and there's once when you're good, you're good. And you're like, Oh, it's coming at this angle. I know. Okay. Here's how it is. But as you're kind of learning, you kind of get a sense of like, Oh, I can paddle for this one or, Oh no, I'm too far outside or oh, I'm about to get buried. And what you're learning is that instinct for how fast to paddle, where to situate yourself. And after you've developed, it's actually easier to say, Oh, I'm going to angle this way. Cause it's going to break this way. And that process of learning is really about feeling what it's like to have the wave throw um, and push you forward, right? Mm. So this is the thing about emotion and decision-making I find most interesting is 
is this this process yeah it, it, there's so there's so much in there i, I mean i uh first off this is like the 10th time i've probably said this in the podcast but if you are in any one of these worlds uh, you need to read the klein and kahneman paper of failure to disagree right where they <laughs> dig a lot into this idea about like what we're saying because what what's really interesting to me is like like okay so so let's take for granted just for a second the idea that there are incredible architectures of computation going on under the hood here a little bit and they're going to nudge you towards pattern recognition and they're going to nudge you towards uh, knowledge in the form of emotional decision making, large quotes around that, uh, that like are are going to guide you before you might have a conscious ability to name the factors that explain that, right? But what's interesting in there is that we used the word improve, right? We said that your skill at the Iowa gambling task improves. So I think what we really mean by that is that you drift in a direction based on what your understanding about the underlying reality of the game that you're playing. So that's an improvement if your next task requirement is in the same world as the task that you just learned in. It's actually to your detriment in some sense if the world has changed a little bit around you and you don't realize it, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the big underlying questions about this when we get back into the, the realm of crisis and emergency is what kind of a world am I in? Am I in a part of the world that is predictable and related to prior experiences, or am I in a world that's really not? How much can I rely on that, and how much should I, you know, sort of choke back a little bit on the pattern recognition that I have versus let it fly? And I think that's a continual, uh, continual space in there. Um, I also think it's worth saying that a, a problem we hit here a lot is how do you teach people to do some of these things? Right, because there's there's a missing step other than like there's a way of teaching which is just slam your head against the wall a million times until like you bounce off and you're like oh okay you're right I get it I should I should do this but you know presumably if you weld like that you will catch things and maybe yourself on fire right you have to learn how to weld by studying the structure I mean I don't know how to weld clearly right like we're just throwing out examples that I don't know but certainly in jujitsu <laughs> if you just throw yourself into a wall over and over again you get hurt. Right? Maybe somebody else gets hurt too. Why are you wrestling a wall? I'm not sure, but yes. Oh, exactly. Right. You'd be surprised. <laughs> but the the idea is that like you have this sense of, okay, well, here's the underlying reality that I understand and can feel even if I can't explain. But now I have to transfer this knowledge to somebody. Mm -hmm. Right. So I have to make it explicit in order to say what you described. Like, well, you gotta understand the, you know, the amperage, you gotta understand the thickness of the material, all this stuff. So there's these two levels that we're playing this game at. One is what's the world? How do we learn it? And the other is what's the world? How do we teach it? Yeah. Well it goes, I mean it it fits well with your book, right? Going back to first principles, like working on mental models that are flexible mm -hmm. and adaptable, right? Sure. So for for founders, um, one of the one of the hallmarks or predictors of founder failure is the ability to um, stick with a goal and not keep exploring things, right? So founders are by, by definition explorers. They're trying to find, oh, this this is a source of value that is untapped, and really love being in that creation, idea generation, R and D mode. And this is often a red flag for a lot of investors who are like, no, you've you've got your thing. You've got to execute it now. We got to find out what's going to happen. Hmm. You really spend all your time on target on this thing, right? Um, so this this whole domain of study, um, the transfer of learning is a massive area. 
I think it's sure. partly why, like, um, and I those stories not finished on this at all, this at all, but the like virtual reality as a training device, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like there were a few years ago, all these stories about, you know, NFL quarterbacks using VR to learn to read the defense and all these sure. things. And you got to think like, well, if that had really scaled according to the promises of it, it'd be everywhere by now, right? Um, maybe it would, I mean, maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't, but it's really hard to get something to, to translate from one thing to the other. I mean, look at, um, um, we were fortunate we hosted Alex Honnold, the, the rock climber, uh, for an interview a few years ago. And it's not my best interview I've ever done. Um, but I really loved getting to know Alex. He's a, he's just a fantastic guy. Um, but you know, they say, oh, Alex Honnold doesn't feel any fear. Um, but you certainly feels a lot less fear than most than anybody would whilst free soloing but um he clearly has fear for personal relationships he clearly has the same fear for vulnerability and emotion so you're never free of one emotion you're like i've conquered my fear in this area i for instance i'm a professor public speaking doesn't really um it gets me excited I love it. Sure. I'm never numb to it. I, I'm nervous before every single class period. If it's 50 people or 30 or 150 or 300, um, I'm always nervous before public speaking, but that's part of what gets me excited about it. That's how I know I'm going to give a good lecture. It's like, yeah, I'm like, all right, I'm feeling it. Let's do this. Right. Um, and, and that would scale perfectly well to, um, I, I would be fine speaking in front of any number of people. I mean, depending on the topic, of course, but, um, it does. It would just get me excited. The more the merrier at this point, right? But you know, if it came down to you know um, negotiating with my boss or um, you know doing some of my consulting work and you know trying to trying to drop contracts and like, I still have those fears of insecurity of do I have you know some imposter syndrome here? Um, what is a neuroscientist doing as a business school professor? Mm-hmm. Like, what am I doing? What do I offer? And so those those aspects of self doubt are mm-hmm. um, always available to us. Kind way to put that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Why not? You know, you should all be self compassion is is I think yeah. our greatest superpower. Um, but uh, and so this is the thing is like this is what makes it so amazing, right? Is like you don't you're never free from emotion because it's just it's baked into us. You wouldn't want to be. And then there's weird things like this is what makes this stuff so fun. So, and so awful to study is like, but then again, there are times when we have the right analogy that things do kind of unlock, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, for me in my, in my um, studio um, this summer, I spent um, like installing a really complicated stereo system in my old truck and it involved fabrication of, wood metal fiberglass cloth like doing all kinds of new techniques that i'd never really done before and i had a friend who's like my woodworking mentor and he he's way more skilled than i am when it comes to like making a doing a doing a glue up making like perfect Mm -hmm. squares which is all it is um and this was not a perfect square opportunity these were all multi-angles there's no math that we're gonna use to solve this it was all right, let's glue some stuff in this place and do it. And I was really comfortable with that because I had this wide range of experiences mm. 
to do it. So like I've repaired surfboards with fiberglass. So I'm like, oh, okay, I've used this before. Um, I've done the woodworking with him, of course. And then I've done enough, you know, kind of basic electrical stuff that it didn't, didn't bother me to have to do all this complicated wiring. Um, and so there are times, this is what's so maddening is there are times when that transfer is so perfect. You're just like, sure. boom, got it. Sure. And there's other times. So like, it's really hard to, it's just so funny. It's hard to predict. And then there's other times you can still just like lock up, right? There's still times when your yeah. brain goes like, I'm out. <laughs> like, oh, turns out you're hungry and you're sleepy and you're under recovered. And that also has a strong bearing on, on how you're going to perform, you know? So these are slippery. There's, these are really slippery topics. Um, but that's the, yeah, that's the fun part to me is like, the more you can use the wide range of experiences we have, the better, mm-hmm. right? So coming from, you know, neuroscience, um, you know, even when I was a kid, I don't, I don't know if you knew that about me, but I was a child actor. I was in Back to the Future 3 when I was a kid. I did um, not know that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so like I used that experience of being on right set on. Was when I was seven, being on the set. And um, I talk about this with my students um, last week about how that really taught me what flow state looks like. That really huh. taught me what it's like to feel like the, the thing I'm doing, the thing I want to do and the thing I am doing are exactly the same. And it really just was a, this fantastic lesson. I was just really, really, really lucky um, to get that part because it taught me that lesson hmm. forever that like, you know, if you know exactly where you want to be and you actually get to do that, like how good that feels and how that's hmm. something worth really chasing. So I've yeah. I've always been in pursuit for that, you know, and um, um, becoming a professor was the much harder it turned out than getting a line in a movie. Um and, but at the same time, I feel that too, when I'm teaching and I have a great lesson, I'm like, that's exactly where I want to be. You yeah. Know? Um, and so I mean, that, when, that's the upside of this, right? Yeah. Is like learning to use your heart, literally, literally use your heart to guide goal pursuit, to guide how mm-hmm. we make decisions to say, well, that really makes my heart sing, right? As corny as that can sound like that's, that's honestly, if I had a superpower, it's like, um, it's really listening to that, even listening to negative emotions like envy when I'm like, dang, dude, how did you do that? Like, I really wish I were there and going, Oh, that's something like, I just hit something like, huh, what do I do to get that? Am I willing to make the changes? Can I sacrifice the things that, that are comfortable now to get to that? Right. And so I think that's, that's really the basic question that I've been answering in my career. And I've been, I've been lucky, you know, it's certainly not a done deal at all. And um, kind of at a crossroads trying to figure out, you know, what role I want research and practice to play. I know you and I are really similar sure. in that, right? Of like, well, I have the skills. What am I doing to use and honor the degree I worked so hard to get? And sometimes feeling like I'm way behind. Um, and, you know, I think, I think part of that's just being a, you know, adult and, you know, balancing real world i have a son and trying to keep you know keep everything happy sure We're at home you know it's a different math if it wasn't for that but uh but that's really to me is the the heart of emotion is like really learning to listen to your heart like hmm. literally learning to listen to the signals that tell us when we're going towards something that feels really lined up with with who we want to be and where we want to be and what we want to be doing Man, I, I love it. Glenn, thank you so much for that. I, I um I have like so many other thoughts on this. I I 
I think though the biggest thing that I'm hoping we can do for the last few minutes of this is just can you can you talk to folks about gratitude? Because I'm yeah. I, I'm just gonna leave, I'm just gonna leave it at that and open yeah. it up. Yeah, yeah I know well, we've, it's already been going. It's crazy. But it's, like, tell me tell me about gratitude. Oh geez, it's the thing, man. It's the thing. The it's a skill. It's it's a muscle. It's a feeling and an emotion. Um, so I became interested in gratitude because I was really interested in studying um, uh, religion and philosophy as an undergraduate. Um, I was reading all these things and particularly diving into a lot of like Eastern uh, 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 writings and doing my own meditation. And this is in the you know early 2000s before it was cool. And you know, I was, maybe it was cool for some, but it wasn't cool for a college kid to like tell your friends, like you guys go out, I'm going to, I'm going to meditate and journal. <laughs> I should have done a little more of that, by the way. I did. <laughs> I overcorrected a little much. There's a golden mean to all this, you know, of course. Sure. Um, anyway, so about enough of that, but I, so gratitude was like this, um, this thing, this signal that just kept hitting. It was like gratitude, gratitude. And, um, I just started reading more about it and um, really starting to go deeper and deeper. Like, so, okay, you've got all the philosophies, you know, you have Cicero saying gratitude is not just among the virtues, but the mother of them all. And you have, um, you know, Adam Smith who said gratitude is like basically the foundation of a healthy society and civilization. And then, and then onward, right. You have, you know, all these different platitudes around gratitude and, um, when I was looking into it, there was like nothing on how it worked in the body. Like what actually happens when we feel grateful. Um, and so that's where I decided to, to set up camp. So I, I really wanted to investigate that niche. Um, nobody studied gratitude at the time. Um, luckily Antonio was like, this is cool. Let's do this. This seems really interesting. Whereas every other potential lab, they're like, nobody studies that don't waste your time. <laughs> and so, um, I, I dived in. And so what I've really found is that gratitude is, it's absolutely a skill. It's a skill, it's a disposition. Um, and it's really a thing that like, it really does help with resilience. It really does help with performance. Like the more we can be grateful for a challenge, the more we can be grateful for something that we have to learn that we really didn't wish, we really didn't want to learn, right? Um, the more we can be grateful for experiences we really wish we didn't have to go through. You know, I was working on my dissertation on gratitude um, while my mom was dying. Mm -hmm. And I had this kind of really weird experience because I was studying this, this emotion and this practice and this framework that has so many um, manifestations in our health and on our philosophies. And yet I was going through this though, you know, my worst nightmare. Um, and, and what I really learned about gratitude was that it's, it's not what people say it is typically, it's not a synonym for happiness. It's, it can be related. Of course, it's not a synonym for getting things that are nice. It's not a synonym for, um, getting a cool present or, or something like that, though we can certainly have gratitude for presents and we certainly should. Right. Um, but what I really learned is gratitude is, is a not too distant cousin to pain um, in its own way. That, that gratitude is often a feeling that happens when our own deepest dignity is respected and seen. That 
that when somebody really sees us and says, Hey, I think I can help with something that you're facing. Those are often the, the deepest experiences of gratitude that mm -hmm. we can have. And they're not, they're motivating and they're powerful. They're not the same as just being happy. It's not the same as, um, you know, eating ice cream or something <laughs> Though we certainly can have gratitude for ice cream, of course, sure. but, um, sure. but that's what I've learned about gratitude is that when you're really fostering and practicing and working on this feeling, it's a very complicated, very slippery feeling, but the more you start to see it as, as a vehicle for calm, for contented and for motivation to be mm -hmm. close to others and also for, you know, the various ways in which our own dignity can be recognized and the way we can share humanity with others through gratitude and through recognizing others. Um, this is, this is where you get those really powerful upward cycles. Yeah. And so that's a, that's, that's my perspective on it. Um, it's interesting, you know, it's, it's sad. My mom didn't, didn't make it long enough for me mm -hmm. to, to see me complete my dissertation. So of course it was, it was really tough to defend and just be like, well, there's one, one person here who would have really liked this, you yeah. know? And, um, but I carry that legacy because I've carried this, this incredible lesson of, sure. of course, being so grateful that I had such a good mom, you know? Um, uh, but, but also that like what gratitude really does, it's not, it's not what people say it is. Um, you know, look, if you want to put it on a tapestry next to your live, laugh, love um, <laughs> uh, posters, then awesome. Like, of course, <laughs> let her rip. Right. But it it's what we're going to have, I think, because gratitude is having such a moment. Sure. I, I really want to step in front of the cynicism that's going to come sure. um, as anything that grows in our public awareness, the backlash follows. Mm -hmm. And what I want to say is let's be really really kind let's be really precise about what gratitude is and what it isn't and and really work on fostering just that sense of appreciation for our own dignity mm -hmm. our own life you know our own challenges and stressors and things like that because that that to me is where gratitude starts to really work its magic when you're like this sucks there's nothing i want to do about this but i can find a way to be grateful for it not saying it's not hard not saying mm -hmm. i'm in not entering into a state of denial, but well, I'm going to learn something that's going to really connect me to others. Um, that's to me, that's been my, my skill, my challenge. Of course, I'm still a student of it. <laughs> so sure. a long way to go on it, but I think that's, sure. um, that's the model that I'm striving for at least. So, I mean, Glenn, first off, thank you for sharing that and for, you know, for digging into all of that. I, um, you know, the, the framework we put forward at the beginning, although obviously limited, was talking about emotions and feelings and introception. Is gratitude a, an emotion? Is it a feeling? Is it a a, a top-down skill set we're doing? Is it a, a loop? Is it more complicated than that? <laughs> um, yes and no. Um, sure. It's It would be what we call an emotional feeling. Okay. Um, in the taxonomy of emotion, it's, um, it's a social emotion and a moral emotion. Um, it's a motivator to, um, bind ourselves to others. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, um, also, you know, a feeling that's related to relief. Um, 
so in my research, when we when we actually discovered or discovered is the wrong word, sorry. Um, when we when we were we were the first people to publish a direct study of the neural correlates of gratitude. Hmm. Um, that's not saying it's a discovery, right? It's just something that we we did. Sure. Um, but we we saw that the brain regions active were for those associated with interpersonal bonding and joy, right? So it's a cycle, it's a behavior, um, it's a lot of things, right? It's a moral motive, um, you know, in, you know, kind of the affective neuroscience, meaning the neuroscience of feelings, it would be slated as a social and moral emotion mm-hmm. um, and thought of as a very, you know, people would put it at like a really high level thing, but to me, it's really deep into our homeostasis. In fact, we published a study, um, actually it wasn't a study, we published a review article and I'm so proud of it, but I think like nobody's actually read it. Um, It's with a student I was working with um, named Max Henning and we posited an evolutionary role for gratitude, linking back to opioids, right? Or endogenous opioids, um, showing that um, there there are receptors in our skin that code for, um, uh, for human touch, right? Mm-hmm. And they're really tied to these social systems because um, as we as we kind of reason that in the grasslands, if you're covered in ticks, you have this allostatic burden all the time, right? So if you look back to our, our ancestors, um, you know, moving into the grasslands where you have all these burdens and all these what we sure. call allostatic burdens that you can't reach. What do you do? You need somebody else to get them. Sure, right. And that's part of why there's a, there's a whole host of research on this and theorizing about why it feels so good to be touched mm-hmm. and why touching being touched makes us want to touch other people. Has to do with the the lessening of the allostatic burden of having these these parasites on us, mm. right. Um, and what this creates like is, is systems for social currency, right. For hierarchy, for, um, working with others. Um, and I think it's a beautiful theory showing that emotion like gratitude that we think of are these high level, like, Oh, what a slippery, crazy, hard, abstract concept, um, can boil down to like the fundamental exchange of value between people so interesting i put it put it in print but yeah. i think it's a really good case i just have to be you know a scientist still and say like of hey. course no of course no, <laughs> but i think it's a good uh, maybe i think it's a very strong i i that book that that article is yeah. um uh, open access and nice. people should dive in it's a fun article super cool I, okay so, wow so much um i want to i want to stitch this together a little bit um, so I, one of the reasons that I was excited to have this talk today is that in most of the roles of the folks who are listening to this, the, the roles that they're inhabiting are things that are ultra high stress, uh, often life or death, often bumping up against, you know, horror and suffering and, and just a whole host of things that are, that are hard to put it mildly. Right. I'm sometimes they are hard and necessary, and we're honored and grateful to be the ones doing them. And sometimes they're just plain damn hard. But I think that we've talked a lot on this podcast about um, 
you know, the way the brain works when we're making certain types of decisions. And I wanted to get us into gratitude because I think that in my own life, it's been part of my answer to what gets you through a lot of this stuff, right? Is you can't change a lot of things, but you can hold on to that and build up that foundation of gratitude around stuff. And you'll forgive me again for hand-waving around gratitude a little bit as I'm doing this. But I think that there's a lot of depth in there. Um, Unexpectedly, in terms of what I had set out, we got really deep into this idea of like, what is the role of emotion in decision-making, which I I know we just barely scratched the surface of, which is so cool. We wandered in a tacit knowledge transfer. We wandered a little bit into, you know, sort of some of the ways that we compute decision-making. And there's a whole layer to this uh, that we didn't really apply, which was how does all of these systems work when you're in extremis, right? How do they work when you're in life or death scenarios or when you feel like you're in a life or death scenario or when there is, you know, everything's on fire all around you. Um, but I think we laid an incredible foundation for that. So I, I'm going to, I'm going to ask right away, like even on the recording thing, can we do around two of this in the very near future where we talk about that piece of it, we sort of like start here and then build from there. Yeah. Um, but I'll also ask as we close this out, if you want to issue a challenge to anybody listening to this, something that you want them to try differently or do differently after hearing this episode. And and you know, if they're like me, they're walking away from this with their minds blown anyway, and there's probably no shortage of things they can try next. But what is it that you want them to do? I mean, I, I, it's really simple. I'm so sorry. I, I don't have something more profound, but like... Um... And we really got down into consciousness and the, the the meaning of existence and how yeah. humans work. I think we hit profound. I think okay, I think all right. We're well, okay. I mean, look, just just listen to what makes your heart sing. You know, listen to it. I mean, um, reach out. I'm easy to get a hold of. Um, yeah. And like, practice gratitude. Here's what I want you to do. If you're in a leadership position, so I'm standing up this company right now. It's called Grateful OS. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's everything I know about high performance and gratitude. And I'm packaging it and taking it on the road. And right now, what it looks like is me just kind of giving talks to groups. And what I hope it evolves into is a suite of tools, programs, experiences, um, where people can really put this um, science into heart. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it's actually going to be much simpler than I think it is, because when I talk to leaders who say, you know what, all I do, I had a great um, chat with a a VC um, portfolio last week. And one of the founders was like, you know, this is so good. This is exactly what I do. Thank you for providing the science behind it. But Mm. we just, every other week we have a gratitude sit down and we have a team of engineers and really tough people. And they say, it's the time of the week they look forward to the most. It's a 30 minute meeting, go around, say what you're grateful for. And let's finish our week on that. So I'm saying out there for those of you who are leaders of groups, um, put try it out. Put some sort of gratitude ritual nice. to your meetings, into your teams. Get up and walk around if you're in a physical workplace or if you've got a Slack channel and just drop some notes of thanks. Don't wait for people to be grateful for you. That's That's not how it works. Go say thank you and go try to build systems for gratitude into your company and let me know how it goes. And if you need a hand, uh, reach out, of course. Um, but that's what I want people to do. If you happen to be in the position where you're, you get to lead or take care of or manage people, try to bake some gratitude into something boring. 
and tell me how it goes. Just call it an experiment. It may go, it can go any different way. I'm not saying I'm not giving a a total prescription. This is going to unlock your peak potential and all that. You know, you do gratitude on one meeting and you're at your IPO next month. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's an experiment and you're going to be different than I am. And Dan's going to be different than, than you bake it into your routine somehow and just treat it like an experiment and then see what the results are. I love it. Glenn, thank you so much. Of course. Thank you, Dan. Always a pleasure, man. So if you want to find out more about Glenn or reach out to him, you can visit his website. It's glennrfox.com. That's G-L-E-N-N-R-F-O-X.com. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed. As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice, and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, and you can find it at emergencymind.com book. All right, good luck out there.